everybody, and welcome to Drunk Monkeys Twin Peaks Vlogcasting. I am one of your hosts, Colleen Carney Hefner. I am additionally one of your hosts, Chris Pruitt. Producer Matt. We're here to finally talk about the Twin Peaks movie Fire Walk With Me. Um, this is going to be a little bit of a different episode. If you listen to us and you follow along with us, you'll know that we usually just break down every episode scene by scene and talk about it however uh we've all agreed that one if we do that for this movie we're going to be here for five hours because it's like a two and a half hour long movie and there's so much abstraction and so many themes that talking about it scene by scene kind of won't do it the service that that we think it should have it would be a disservice so we're gonna kind of do a little bit of a different uh way about it and i have a feeling that that way is going to stick for the rest of the time that we talk about Twin Peaks. Because, <laughs> uh, because after this, we're going to do the missing pieces and then we're going to do season three. And uh, if you have seen season three, you'll know that abstraction is the yeah. main theme. So uh, so it's we're going to be shifting is what I'm trying to say at this point. Yeah, okay. I think that's right. And, you know, seasons one and two and especially two to its detriment are very plot oriented they're very about the solving of and untangling of certain uh mysteries and character relationships and things like that and the ideas kind of flower out into something a little more abstract and a little more universal as we get through this film as we go and especially as we go into the return um and uh uh i i'll talk more about that i think as we go through the movie here because i think you can see the move happening over the course of this film you can see how it eventually informs the return and you can see how it ultimately kind of freights a lot of the early material with meaning that makes it work better in retrospect after you've been through the whole series um because it doesn't try to keep just rehashing the same ideas and so on um it it tries to open a window on it so um i think Colleen is right. I think this will probably be the dominant format going forward from oh, here. Before we get real into it, I just want to do a quick uh, bit of information regarding Drunk Monkeys, the literary, the literary journal that we all work on. Um, we have been on a, an extended hiatus due to uh, some issues I was having in terms of mental health stuff. Things are a lot better. Uh, so we will be opening back up. We're recording this on October 8th. Uh, we're going to be opening for submissions and a new issue is going to come out next week, the 14th. Originally, I said the 9th, but it's going to be the 14th. Um, we will be reading for the rest of October and into November. Uh, we'll do a couple double issues just to kind of get back up to speed. And um, and I'm happy to report that we'll just be back. It's just going to we're just going to be back. That's all there is to it. It uh, just works. Also, uh, Trapper Mark Hells is childproof sky is finally out on our on our you know the arm of our <laughs> the chapbook arm of our literary journal the arm right. oh my god the right arm. well i was trying to work in a thing and then i stumbled upon my words but whatever anyway trapper markel's childproof sky is finally available uh, i'm going to be honest with you ordering it directly from amazon is your best bet it's a lot easier but you can order it from the website if you would like um the pre-orders have for the most part gone out i think i have to ship like five more or something like that they should be arriving within a week it's a lot quicker for some reason than candace kelsey's choose your own poem was i had a lot of printing issues with hers for some reason 
and we'll be working on Kat Conway's Nocturnes next. So that should be out either end of this month, very early November, uh, pretty loose with the fall 2023. But anyway, those things are out now. And uh, yeah, just check it out. I'm going to be updating the site over the course of the week and everything. So by the time the 14th rolls around, things should be a little bit cleaner on the website and you'll see a lot of information there. So send us your things if you want to. That would be awesome. I believe we are also on the verge of the return, I guess, next month from my notifications of the uh, Colleen, Colleen Trion, uh, as as we so love to refer to it. Oh, I just made that yeah. up on the spot. Yeah, uh, uh, the Patreon that I run, which is just usually me rambling about stuff, has been dormant as well as I've been dealing with stuff. So I haven't been charging anybody and I actually won't be charging anybody until January. I usually take November and December off just because of the holidays. I don't feel right charging people during mm-hmm. holiday seasons and uh, I've been so behind in in content and I'm working on catching up with that too that I'm just not charging anybody until January but if you want to sign up uh, patreon.com slash Colleen CH I do have a lot of cool stuff coming on it it's just been waylaid by the fact that I've been sad <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm okay I'm, I'm relatively okay uh, for the most part now so so uh we, we love a relatively okay Colleen. Yeah. Um, Speaking of that's sad. about the best any of us can do, really. Glad to hear it. It's been hard. I have chronic pain issues and there's like a painkiller shortage that I like take to like function during the day. So that's not fun. But you know, besides that, whatever. I'm alive. Yeah. And uh it's better than the alternative. So it's fine. Everything is fine. You know what's not fine? Laura Palmer. <laughs> Hold on. I want one more piece of front matter before we actually do this, okay. which is so annoying. But I no, just do okay. want to I just do want to say this on the podcast before we get into talking extensively about a film, which is that uh you know the Screen Actors Guild still needs a deal and they need it today and they need it yesterday and they need it a month ago. Um and I want to mention I'm not gonna go into the details here because people who are much smarter about the details have gone into that in other better places, but I will just say that like you know, the WGA eventually got basically everything they asked for. They basically pants the producers there. And they did it because, you know, after months of dicking around, they figured out we can't replace these people with AI. We can't shut down the whole industry over our desire to, you know, just never pay our employees. Uh, So unions work. Unions should be supported. Uh, The actors deserve money for the roles they fill. And I don't give a shit if a producer makes 29 million instead of 30 million next year uh and i don't think anybody should so just yeah. gonna throw no. that one out there and union strong <laughs> forever we actually also even looked into whether or not it was okay to record this podcast and because we're none of us are members of sag and other like different varying things that go into like the podcast rules um, we did figure that it was safe for us to record and it wouldn't be like kind of hurting anybody uh, not that I think it would anyway, but we always want to play on the safe side for people we support. So just in case uh, we fucked up somehow, trust <laughs> us when we say we are in total support. Yeah. And, and, and we are not making money off of this podcast, yeah, crucially. So. <laughs> nor nor is David Sazloff that I am aware of. So, yeah. <laughs> But uh, we do it out of the kindness of our hearts and out of the joy of doing. So, okay. So just, uh, just pay the SAG people and let's all move on with our lives. So... Um, and bring glow back while we're at it yeah keep striking for that yeah (laughs) really (laughs) all right okay so um you know why don't we have chris start (laughs) because i'm not sure how to start this (laughs) okay um so 
as we mentioned earlier, we're probably going to run through a quick uh, um, summary and then kind of dive into some topics. This is going to be a little more free flowing. Um, now, the smart thing would have been to do to script a summary, but that's not how we roll on the Twin Peaks Logcast show. So um, for with that stated, I'm going to do my best to try to improv a uh, summary here. Colleen, please interrupt me as relevant or necessary. And uh, I'll also say we really encourage you, especially in this case, to watch the film and know it before we go into this. Because yeah. there's just too much abstraction. There's too much visually going on. There is a lot of things now happening with timey-wimey stuff that really wasn't happening so much before or maybe was a little bit implied and is now very in your face uh you're not going to be able to follow if you have not already watched the product no. so um, you may not even be able to follow if you've watched it yeah, yeah. <laughs> we may not be following it right. and uh if that sacrifices a bit of my credibility as a host uh Actually, no, I think it preserves it because I think yeah. anybody who tells you they're following it completely is just yeah. fucking lying. They're lying. Yeah, they're liars. Um, so anything else before we dive in, Colleen? Uh, I think a big old trigger warning, right? There oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, about sexual abuse. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, as we've discussed multiple times, the series, kind of the core of, of it is surrounding this idea of like, pseudo societally acceptable sexual abuse of young women and the way they are sort of martyred for that and also uh simultaneously sort of uh it, it it's seen as like a titillating thing or something um this movie engages with that perhaps the most frankly yet and i think the most frankly of any of this material um because it's more abstracted and weird once we get to the return even though it is still kind of circling those same ideas so um you know, this this film of all the pieces, and again, maybe at this point you've watched it, but of all the bits of like just literal footage that this series produces, this has the most like explicit content around about demonstrating varying forms of sexual violence, um, emotional abuse that's kind of already been in here, but uh, it's, there's a lot it's of here. drug use. Yeah, there's a lot of drug use. There's a lot of there, there's a lot of just basic nudity some of it offensive and some of it not um it's it's a lot of stuff um so yeah all yeah, of that should be said warnings. and yeah. put in sorry what's that i said just general trigger warnings about yeah yeah just general all, all the things they're all in here basically yeah, <laughs> yeah. the kids are not all right no <laughs> certainly not it, that, that is them, actually the one. theme <laughs> but it, it's the, it, the kid yeah yeah um Okay, so yeah, let's get into it. So as Chris said, it is a little abstracted, but I would I would like to actually introduce the first part of the movie because it is my most favorite, because as we know, my best friend Chris Isaac is in it. And uh, for those not in the know, Chris Isaac is actually an instrumental part of my friendship with Chris Pruitt here. That's because right. I read a poem about Chris Isaac when I was graduating our alma mater, and then I overheard him talking about it in the break room and i was like that was me and we've been friends ever since and i also posted about it which is how we find found each other online which yes. was important at the time because we lived literally on opposite ends of the country when exactly that happened. so um so so basically just a quick rundown um and, and i just want to just take this first part is we open up with a murder and it's very quick you don't really see anything 
We go into uh, Gordon, David Lynch, contacting Chris Isaac, who is Chet Desmond, another FBI agent. And he wants him to investigate the murder of a woman named Teresa Banks, who is killed in a very similar fashion to Laura Palmer. But this is a year before that. Um, And so we have uh, Chet and Kiefer Sutherland, Stan Stanley, uh, looking into this murder. And Kiefer Sutherland is super delightful in this role. Like, I love, I had the worst crush on him in the 90s. (laughs) I was just like so in love with him so i don't want to interrupt the summary but i gotta say i forgot it was kiefer because he's playing so against type here yeah. that I, it was yeah. just like i completely spaced that it was him so yeah. until i was looking yeah. at him on screen yeah, he's like yeah. kind of like a bumbly nerd and it's yeah. like yeah. you know like you're not a lost boy or yeah. a horrible <laughs> killer in freeway which is like one of my favorite roles of his such uh, a crap movie or a hardened secret agent or whatever the fuck he does nowadays <laughs> um <laughs> And you can jump in at any time, Chris, because I'm not sure if I'm going to be summarizing this the way you want me to or whatever. But basically, they go, they meet some resistance with a local sheriff's department, but they ultimately, like, get the body. They go to her house. We see Harry Dean Stanton. It's great. Um, We'll see him again later on in the the third season, which is very exciting. Uh, I'm not going to do many spoilers or whatever, but we do see him again. And that's just great because I love when he shows up. And he's incredible in this, by the way. (laughs) No, he's amazing. totally being annoyed by everybody and he's like i don't want anyone to talk to me and it's like same as hell um you know they they look into her stuff they find a t under her fingernail she's missing a ring uh all of this crazy stuff is happening and uh they go to a diner and she it's it's very much like a parallel there's a lot of parallels and there's a lot of repetition in this movie a lot of loops a lot of time slips this is basically like bizarro twin peaks where you know, you have a bizarro double R and like you have a bizarro Norma. Um, and basically, uh, you know, it isn't even sorry to interrupt, but it isn't even the name of it. It's like Deer Meadow. Right. So instead of the mountain Twin Peaks, you're literally. Yeah, like, it's yes. uh, yeah. Fat Trout is the yeah, it's Deer Meadow. And then Fat Trout yeah. is the trailer park. And um, I forget what the name of the diner is. I don't think I wrote it down, but um, but it's all very like like bizarro land. Like it's just slightly off. Like someone crushed a butterfly somewhere. And, like, yeah. Um, essentially, uh, you know, her boss there thinks that she was like kind of on drugs and she was just always late. And but she was like nice girl, or whatever. And then, essentially, Chet and uh, Stanley part ways, and Chet goes back to the trailer park, finds a ring under her trailer, and that's the last we ever see of him. He just disappears into thin air. And that's the end of Chris Isaac being in the Twin Peaks movie. And uh, I wish he had come back. And he didn't. But that's my big summary of like the preamble of this movie. (laughs) When I was on fire, nobody could save me but him. Um, And so the peak of his powers. Yeah. So if you um, want to put it down there, uh, I'll you put get... it down there, and you can fill in anything else because I think there are a couple things in there we could talk about. But sure, um, let's it... not forget Let... <laughs> our brother's sister's girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, our bro- Well, I, I, I want to get through this summary before we start like <laughs> yeah, really painfully diving into like scenes that. here. Um, so as Colin kind of implies, this essentially the the movie is kind of broken up into two parts uh one is this mystery at the beginning and then one is a visitation of twin peaks proper where we see basically the last week or so of laura's life uh but before we break over to that we get a very brief interlude with coop and uh our our friends at the fbi in philadelphia um 
Albert, we uh, all all kinds of folks that we like to see, but it's so fucking weird. <laughs> he like so Coop shows up. He like oh what Chris Isaac is missing. He like goes down there. He looks around, pokes around for a bit, doesn't really figure anything out. Is like yeah I don't know. I don't really know what happened. Um and uh somewhere in here and I forget timing wise exactly where it happens. Um basically we see uh a very 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 bizarre scene that we're gonna have to dive into where uh david bowie mysteriously appears in the fbi building along with what seems like a secondary image of coop himself and talks about a bunch of weird shit and we see a lot of classic david lynch creepy little guys including some (laughs) we're familiar with from the uh um from the original series in a meeting of some kind and then he poofs out of existence and we're kind of left to wonder what the fuck just happened there um we kind of change gears from all this bullshit to uh um like i said the last week or so of laura's life in twin peaks we get kind of a bizarro opening of twin peaks where we get the opening shot and the uh wonderful angelo battlementi music and it's like oh i'm right back home again 33 Except- minutes into the movie we get the twin peaks <laughs> yeah 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 and i sent chris a picture of the springfield kids when they're like say the line bart right. <laughs> and they all yeah. hear. i was like this was me when i finally heard the yeah. twin peaks theme 33 minutes and 45 seconds into the movie <laughs> right and instead of the like kind of uh scenery focused stuff that we get in the intro sequence in the show, we get kind of what would be the intro sequence to Twin Peaks if it happened before the Laura Palmer death, where it is like her kind of getting ready for school and interacting pleasantly with her friend Donna and Mike and Bobby are there and they're being annoying, but they're being regular annoying like boys <laughs> in high school. And there, you know, she goes to school and we see some other people that we recognize there and we see the school building uh you know it, it's a lot of like james yeah, yeah james <laughs> uh, unfortunately we do in fact see james um so and and that's kind of where we come into it as a scene uh and we you know we get this whole sequence where um you know she is having a clandestine meetup with james we know that she was kind of like we well okay the reporting from james and donna is that she was seeing james and that he was the real love of her life uh as of her death we find over the course of this movie that's not really even that true either um and that ties into something i love about this film but i'll get to it once we're through all this other crap um she meets up with james uh they sleep together she's obviously very troubled we know laura was troubled by a lot of things we see things kind of start to fall apart like uh, Bobby, who's supposed to be her boyfriend at this time, questions her, like, where the hell were you when she was up there hanging out with James? And she kind of has to mollify him. Uh, she goes home and discovers pages are torn out of her diary. We see her go visit Harold, the shut-in. And we see that this is how he winds up with her diary. And we also see that the nature of their relationship together is a little stranger than he ever told us before mm-hmm. as well. Um, and there is some kind of bizarre coercion going here. We don't get much of him. That's about it. We just get the one scene. Um, and there's just like a lot of this stuff where we're seeing that, you know, the surface is cracking with Laura and however much 
through season one, we have all these interviews with these characters about like, uh, nobody knew anything bad was going on with Laura. Uh, what this prequel really does is demonstrate uh, either they didn't care or they're lying because yeah. everything is fucked up with her. Like it's totally either, fucked up. They either like, don't care, are lying, or are fucking stupid. Yeah, yeah. And and um, honestly, I I would err on the side of fucking stupid for some of them. Yeah, like Bobby. <laughs> like like. It, but, uh, right, right, yeah. But yeah and... like, things are falling apart. And I do want to interrupt real quick here that we do have a very quick scene where Coop is having premonitions of Laura, which right. I think is interesting because he doesn't really show up at Twin Peaks in the first season saying, I had premonitions about this woman. But he says to Albert in a very quick scene, I see a, a girl, she's in trouble. She's she's crying she's doing drugs and she's crying out for help and albert sort of chides him well that's every woman and that's every girl in america and he says what's he doing she doing right now and he says she's preparing a large amount of food and she is she's getting ready for the meals on wheels that we know she used to do before her death mm-hmm. um and she has a very strange encounter while setting up the meals on wheels with shelly who does not want to help her and norma mm-hmm. The only moment we see Norma, which is upsetting, but uh, is like, you have to help her. You're not doing anything. And we know Shelly doesn't want to help her because Shelly's sleeping with her boyfriend secretly. And we find that out, of course, in the show. But in uh, at this moment, um, we see an old woman and her grandson. We'll remember them from season one. And they say, this painting would look good on your wall and gives her the world's creepiest, most haunted painting. Yeah. And she hangs it on the wall later. And it's like, bitch. <laughs> you- right. <laughs> well... And, and this painting, to be clear, this painting is a, it's a painting of like a dark doorway, right? And she takes this home and room with a dark yeah, doorway where yeah, and and this kind of becomes the keystone moment because as soon as she has this painting, stuff starts becoming clearer to her. She's able to see. We we know that she is aware she's being victimized by Bob. She does not understand that Bob is Leland until after she receives this painting and goes home and sees Leland in the home where she sees him as Bob for a moment and then she sees him a moment later and he, he's Leland. This is we have how that grandson. Be- we have yeah. that grandson tell her the man is looking for the diary. Right. Like he's in the hiding place. It's like kind of code, but it's also very creepy. It's also David Lynch's son, so I like can't really take it. Right, super seriously because I'm like, yeah. really? <laughs> He's like even dressed like him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Well, while uh, David yeah. Lynch also continues to play a character on, on screen right. occasionally throughout the film, so I mean, it's you know, it's just layers of this crap. But yeah. um, we uh, things get stranger from here. She starts having a series of maybe dreams, maybe visions. She seems to be seeing Coop out of time. We find out that Coop. We hear about Coop, the good Coop is trapped in the lodge and the bad Coop is out in the real world. Well, that happens after all of this. That happens at the end of season two. Um, but Coop seems to be talking to her across time through the thing as being like, don't take the ring. Like, do not take the ring, whatever you do. He's referring to the ring that uh, Teresa, um, Banks, Teresa had. Banks had and will continue to reappear throughout yeah, the movie. We'll see a lot of people uh, have this. Spoiler, movie. she will take the ring. Yeah, um, she's and, not, yeah, she's not you know, smartest. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, thing, once she takes that painting, things fall apart very quickly for her. And it's almost like, I, I've talked before about on this show about how this show has like an undercurrent of wrongness. Like, so there's these scenes and David Lynch does this beautifully in everything that he does, right? Where there's a scene that's presented in itself as like completely normal, right? Like think the scene with the chickens in 
eraser head where it's like it's just a chicken dinner but these chickens are moving and dancing and it's like you just cut them up like regular and everything is just wrong somehow so we have these scenes where like she's begging donna if she's still love like is are you really my friend and donna's like yes but donna's like so treacly and also i wrote down doppel donna because this is right right yeah this is another thing i want to go into but we'll Um, we'll get there but she's so treacly from here on out with her like so kid gloves with her which like i kind of like someone needs to be so that it's kind of nice because uh, laura as we know her life is falling apart but also it's like a bit too much to be for me realistic we have this bizarre scene where leland demands that she washes her fingernails and she is obviously terrified of him and knows something is wrong and maybe can't articulate it yet but and her mom is just like leland stop it which in like in a way that's not like it gets a little frantic, but isn't as frantic as it should be. It gets frantic, but she's. It, it seems like we see Sarah in the role of I have to defuse this shit all the time. It's not like yeah. she seems to grasp the seriousness the severity of, the of what's happening. Yeah, um, um, and and uh, we also have some like on the side we have some like you know Leo and Bobby drug stuff that's gonna play into season one a lot, but also sets up some stuff for later in the movie. Uh, Bobby needs some coke. Leo's got some coke. It's a whole thing. Um, Crucially, Bobby needs the coke because that's why Laura gives a shit about him. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's exactly. a bit of a there's a bit of an Ouroboros here going on with that. Uh, that is not so clear from how we get the information in season one. Um, you know, there's there's a whole scene where we see probably what we imagine is funding the drug acquisitions here, uh, which is that you know. Um, Laura is getting paid as a sex worker at the uh, roadhouse. Um, at the roadhouse, Donna tries to accompany her in some move to like be like, "See, I can hang." Um, and then this triggers something in Laura to realize, like, "Oh, my shit is spiraling utterly out of control because now my friend is functionally being assaulted." I think we'll probably talk some more about that scene. But, a yeah, bit. I want to talk about the scene um, a lot because Log Lady shows up. It's a whole thing. So yeah, and but there's that's like a, a big overview. There's like a big red room parallel, etc. So yeah, um, I was like, is this a separate place or a back room? I never knew about. I don't yeah. know. They never well, tell us. <laughs> yeah, it, um, we get um, what else do we get? We get this scene where uh, Leland is driving um laura to breakfast with their mom and he is accosted on the road by an angry driver whoops turns out the angry driver is uh mike Mike, from the the one-armed man from the tv show who is just screaming at him in a bunch of weird terms that doesn't really make any sense i wrote yelling about corn (laughs) yes uh this this triggers a memory in leland about that leland recognizes and knows what's going on with Laura to some extent because Leland and it's not clear this is related directly to the Bob issue with him it's like he's just fucking around on his wife with younger girls and at some point is led to discover that you know one of them's like oh I can bring my friends next time and then it, well that's Teresa Banks the one right right it's Teresa the one who gets yeah. murdered who we now will eventually learn that Leland murders her because of this Um, but you know in this encounter Leland discovers that you know his daughter is doing this uh interesting that he does not choose to engage her at all beyond you know um uh beyond however he chooses to abuse her through the bob persona or whatever and we can see that there's some sort of conflict with these two memories kind of meeting in him and it's not really clear you know how 
it feels like it's deliteralizing the possession angle that uh the tv show eventually takes it feels like it's saying that it's a little more complicated than this it's a little more abstract than this some of this is just that leland is a piece of shit guy you know um so i not to settle on one thing here trying to keep it moving but that is kind of the upshot of that i think it's it's a very Um, strange scene and and they're both high key hysterical through the whole thing with like weird again like i mentioned that kind of dreamlike like something just seems slightly off like when you're in a dream and something just seems kind of wrong but like it, you go with it because it's a dream like they keep being hysterical but then like also very calm with each other it's an odd scene and it's probably the scene that i remember the most from the first time i watched it when i was a teenager right. this was actually kind of the first thing i really watched like i have said that i've watched I watched the show because my dad watched the show, but this was like the first thing I consumed myself as an, as like an almost adult. Oh, I'm going to sit down and watch this. And that was a mistake. Cause it scared me. Fucked up. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, uh, let's see. We have, uh, uh, we have this whole thing with like the, this ring. Laura's realizing that Mike had the ring on when he was yelling at them and that she's seen Teresa with the ring on and, uh, there's the vision of like the red room and the little man from another place has the ring on and it's just there's a lot of ring stuff happening and it's not good um and then we have you know like we have like a kind of a scene that shows that he killed Teresa um just angrily smashing the tv and killing her um we have oh i wrote this note down and i just want to read it uh laura doing coke straight out of the bag like i used to I used to have a really <laughs> habit, and I used to do the same exact thing. Maybe it was subconsciously picked up from this movie. I don't know, but uh, I, I got—I I won't lie—I got a little twinge of nostalgia for my younger self. But ultimately, it passed very quickly. Uh, she's at school and talking to Bobby, and she's like, and he's like, "Hey, we're gonna score some coke tonight." So this sets up this whole scene where she and Bobby are going to be in the woods. Um, drinking and laughing and and uh doing coke and waiting for this coke dealer and then the coke dealer is revealed to be one of the guys that uh she was with at the at the roadhouse kind of like you know in this process of being uh exploited or whatever mm-hmm. and bob just fucking straight up kills this guy i mean the guy and, does pull a gun and when, I know when, he does. as soon as he does that bobby like blam 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 but it's very funny when you think about it and we can talk about this later more but it's yeah. just very funny when you think about like bobby fucking killed a guy yeah and then like the first se- season of the show happened and he didn't seem really all that upset about it well he he does fe- seem very fatalistic and stuff when people around it with laura's death and everything and i wonder if that ties in we, we can get back to it but yeah i i feel the same thing it's an interesting wrinkle for him especially when we see what eventually happens to him in the return but he straight up kills this guy and like it kills that vibe fast yeah <laughs> it is not good <laughs> um and they like half-heartedly bury him it's <laughs> kind of funny um, yeah we have this whole fucking scene with james and it sucks he like shows up at laura's house and it's just excruciating he's like why don't you love me and she's like shut up james and then like Leland's just like leering at them from the doorway. And yeah, I- and, and James is like, I'm starting to suspect that you're on a drug. And it's like she, she <laughs> we've been watching her like and, and again we can get into this more, but like, you know, James is sort of positioned as the like real romantic love interest here, except that he doesn't understand what's going on with her at all. You know, he and, doesn't under- and he doesn't know a thing about her. He loves and, and later she'll call him on this and he'll just be like, 
Okay. He he's like Tim Robbins in Tim Robinson in that like nacho skit, and I think you should leave. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know. Um, anyway, yeah. And so this we basically wind up in Laura's last twenty four hours of her life here after following this. Um, we we see the whole deal where Leland drugs Sarah and then basically rapes uh um Laura. Laura. It's, it's it's really upsetting. It's really upsetting. It's such um, an upsetting scene to watch. And they definitely do a lot of weird exploitation where it's like she doesn't realize it's him at first and is kind of into it. It's like a real straw dogs thing happening. And yeah. it's like really gross it's like fucking gross to watch i like i don't get triggered by stuff like this at all usually but i was just like so like disgusted by it yeah um, it's upsetting and it's intended to be upsetting and yeah. it works and it also works. it, it, is, it, it is. is unfortunately also trying to have it both ways and be like a little titillating at the same time and you know we could generously read that as like a way of fucking with the audience or we can like less generously read that as like a gross cinema thing um i probably you know, a little of both to be probably honest. a little bit of both um yeah um she we have uh she realizes it's her father of course and then the next morning she's eating breakfast and she's a complete fucking mess as you would be and uh you know leland just like laura can i talk to you and she's like Fuck. Stay away from me. And Sarah's like, stop. Laura. <laughs> like smoking a cigarette. She doesn't even like try to help her. Laura, <laughs> stop. Yeah. yeah and, uh, <laughs> Laura just kind of like loses it, runs to school. She's kind of, she's just absolutely spiraling. Um, She meets up with Bobby and Bobby uh realizes, he's like, you don't want me. You just want the drugs. Like you don't love me. You just, you just are using me. But then he's like, but it's okay here. And just gives her the drugs. And of course, like, <laughs> it's weird because we know that he's also like dating Shelly on the side. And right. the movie doesn't go into that, but we do know that. And Shelly is truly his like love. So I guess in the end, it's okay. They're both kind of mutually using each other or whatever, but. Uh, right. It does color Bobby's reaction when she dies uh, in season one. Not that we can't imply that from his relationship with Shelly, but it really adds a little bit of an extra layer there that he yeah. knew he was being used and was in turn using her. So, you know, relationships are complicated too. They are. Like, they are. Um, um, and then, uh, oh, do you want to take over? Oh, I, whatever. Let's just run through the end here because yeah, we're right the there. Um, so basically she agrees to meet up with James. He continues to be <laughs> on phone harassment duty. Uh, she goes and meets up with him. They have this whole tearful exchange in the woods where he's like, he's like, I don't understand why you can't just like chill out and we can be together and everything will be fine. And she's, and she tells him like, she sees through his inability to grasp what's going on with her. And she's like, you know, the Laura you love is gone. Like yeah, you, you've got good. me now. And me is not the person that you see when you look at me. Um, I think this is a real key moment. There's a lot of stuff, both in Lynch in general and in Twin Peaks as a specific uh, like property or whatever. Um, that is about the doubling or tripling or confusion of identities and so on. And I, I think we really see it here tied into like, it's really about how we see each other and how people see or make icons of each other. That's obviously what the film is coming towards here. Um, eventually she runs away from James into the woods to join this meetup that had been previously planned with Ronette and Jacques and Leo. And then for a while we have the least interesting part of the movie because it's the only part that like 
is we know what happened because that's what the entire first season and the, the first half of the second <laughs> season of the show is about. Uh, so we we just, uh, fortunately, this film stays away from a lot of that. That's a real prequel pitfall. It doesn't do much of that. But here we see the um, the shack thing play out and it's very unfulfilling because it's just gross and we know what happens. Yeah, we um, don't see Jacques Renault fuck anyone. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is very, very funny to see the reappearance, reappearance of the bird that Leo will then <laughs> assassinate <laughs> with a sniper rifle like <laughs> in like season <laughs> two like or whatever that was. Waldo. <laughs> Good <laughs> lord. That that cracked me up. I uh, thought so too. It's such a it's such an upsetting uh scene that's like I was happy for the levity of that. Yeah. Uh, Jock ties Laura up, which makes her panic, and um, and Leland is spying on them as this is all happening. Uh, Jock stumbles out, and Leo, uh, I mean Leland, knocks him out. Leo stumbles out. Laura's just begging them to untire the whole time, which is very, very upsetting. Uh, Leland, uh, uh, Leo stumbles out, sees Jock, and is like, "Fuck this!" And leaves, <laughs> which like probably the only smart thing Leo ever does. Um. <laughs> And then here we have Leland go in. Mike is actually running after them. Uh, Leland knocks Renette out as she tries to escape. And she's just kind of unconscious. Mike kind of looks at her. And Leland kills his daughter. And A couple uh, couple key images here. Mike throws in the ring. And this is mm -hmm. intended to be the way for Laura to escape. Even though she has been warned not to accept this. Um, there, there's a bit of a divine intervention moment here, which is what allows Renette to get out of her uh, bindings. I think we're probably going to have to talk briefly about this, uh, which is what allows her to open the door to let Mike throw the ring in, which Laura puts on. Part of what's crucial here is that this process and this debasement of Laura into this like person that can only like can only be in the cycle of um you know the use and abuse of her sexuality the use and abuse of drugs etc is like her being transformed into bob in a way into this being of the collecting of suffering and she sees her own reflection becoming bob's reflection in the end and it seems like like this is what she needs to get out of you know <laughs> like yeah. she kind of needs to die here so that she cannot also be bob is like kind of the vibe i get out of this right and i, th I don't think you're wrong there yeah. Uh, and I think we go into that a lot in season three as well. Right, right. So, um, right. yeah, so we have them, we have these like gross moments where Leland's like, I always thought you knew it was me, which is gross. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but ultimately we have this sort of angel vision that happens um to Ronette, and and I'll talk about why that's important because we skipped over it in our recap. But basically, uh yeah, Leland kills her. Uh, Mike leaves, Leland wraps up her body, puts it in the water. As we know, that is where she was floating in the very beginning of the series. Um, Leland and Bob show up in the red room. Uh, Leland floats as Bob stands there. The little man from another planet demands his Garmon Vosia, which is the pain and suffering. He splatters blood everywhere. He eats some cream corn, which we get a close-up of for no reason. A monkey says Judy. This was the scene that scared me the most when I was like, I was like why is there a monkey? What's happening? Um uh yeah. Laura and then you know they have they cut to Laura being found, which is the iconic first part of Twin Peaks, the red room. Laura is there with Dale and standing over her, very classic and uh very, very famous still from the show. And she sees an angel and she smiles and laughs, and that is how the movie ends. Mm -hmm. And so 22 hours and 20 minutes later, that's how the movie ends. An angel. And face. Dale and uh, 
Laura are in the red room now together forever and nothing else is going to happen. And that's the end of the series for real. Uh, this movie was, was famously uh, decried <laughs> and booed at the Cannes Film Festival. They didn't know what they had. So it's really good. I mean, really like good. For, for all the stuff about it, that's hard and difficult and sometimes intentionally, sometimes not intentionally uh, for all the stuff that uh, is like, Wow, good thing I just rewatched the series. This would have been hard for me to be right on top of in 1992. Have to buy like the VHS set, set at <laughs> Sam's Club or something. Like, I don't know how the hell I would have the this. Also, may I, make the, may I make the bold claim that a crowd of European filmmakers might not want to be told that having sex with teenage girls is wrong. Yeah, well, <laughs> especially in the 90s, man. That yes, was like a whole. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, um. It's an excellent movie, but it's an upsetting movie. And uh and it really, really it re- leans hard into the horror movie territory. I definitely consider this a horror movie. Yeah. Um, uh and it did frighten me as a child. Like I was It's frightening. Yeah. <laughs> just the imagery, the leaping lad and the monkey, like it just doesn't so much of it doesn't make sense and it's like you know, if you're not used to a David Lynch movie, then you're just like what? why is there a monkey yeah and and, and in a way that like the tv series could not be because it was on prime time it's it's got all the david lynch stuff in it everything yeah straight up titties they're bush it's crazy they're swearing (laughs) there's swears there's lots of just lingering on an extremely violent image because you can like there's just hanging out on it for a second Yeah. yeah oh my god anyway okay so let's talk themes, motifs. Let's get into English class here. What are the motifs <laughs> of Twin Peaks? <laughs> I walk with me. Um, I said to Chris, I was texting Chris last night, and I said David Lynch is truly asking a lot of his viewers when he when he presents this movie to to watch. And he was like, "Well, yes, I think that's like what he's always doing." But I was like, "But specifically this movie, because there's a lot of hearkening back that is not easy to do." in like 1993 like you can't be like oh wait that old woman and her grandson they were in an episode like one of the first few episodes of season one i wonder if that's the same people i wonder if those are the same characters Chalfont, that name sounds familiar you can't just look it up there's no reddit <clears throat> there's no fucking i am yeah there's like 300 weirdos on the list serve or something and then there's <laughs> like you know but not even that early though not like 93 yeah. like or whatever this I mean, maybe like the fanzine people were like (laughs) you had a question to write it in wait three months for something yeah like (laughs) this is a movie that was made for like 20 people like I mean that's really what the what's going on here which is both part of what's like confounding and amazing about it. it it really is like uh he really felt like it was important to revisit and cover some of this material and put his own mark on some of the stuff that was going on with this show on his return to it. And it it did not seem to really care if anybody was going to watch it or understand what the hell was going on. (laughs) No, I don't think David Lynch cares much about (laughs) any of that shit. Yeah. The fact that he got to make it at all, considering the fact that maybe like it was, it was like the deal was inked before season two went down in flames based on when it was done or whatever. But the fact that he got to make, this continuation of a series that in the general public's estimation at that time had essentially flamed out. 
uh, and that this guy being made at all is really quite something. Yeah, it's crazy. He gets away with a lot. Yeah. <laughs> we love him. Truly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think it's fucking wild that he got keep uh, that he got Chris Isaac. Chris Isaac pops up in so many weird things. She's in Silence of the Lambs for a second. It's like, what, what are you doing here? I love him. Uh, I have he's, him tattooed on me. <laughs> he, he's amazing. He looks great in this. He's he a classic great. Lynchian actor where he's like, he's not he's not really the best actor, but oh. you don't care. He's a great character, you know? He and, pauses before he answers. There's, a, there's an entire scene at the beginning here where there's Lil, this redheaded, weird girl, who's like giving them information in code for some reason. Right. And uh, David Lynch is like, she's my mother's sister's girl and puts his <laughs> hand over his face. It's a, it's the weirdest thing. But she's then, basically like, the- delivering details about the case through interpretive dance. Yeah. Uh, yeah why odd. this has to be the method when Gordon Cole is standing right there. Uh, nobody the can say. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, she was st- stand- stomping in place. That means we'll meet resistance. My favorite <laughs> is, uh, she had a tailored dress on. Yeah. That means drugs. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, As we know. <laughs> but but everything is just like in that Lynchian way, like, you know, Kiefer Sutherland will be like, well, what does that mean? And and Chris Isaac will like wait a beat and then just be like, that means we'll meet resistance. And like, and it's just like, why are you pausing? Like right, <laughs> but David right. Lynch's characters always do that. And it's really fun. But yeah. um but I can definitely see like this opening uh these opening scenes make it seem so much like it's going to be a different movie. Like, it's like, oh, it's a whodunit, right? I mean, we know it was Leland, but like, let's see, like, maybe he had a storied career in killing beforehand. There's a fingernail letter and everything. They never go back to any of this. Yeah. He disappears and that's it. Yeah. Um, I will, I will say I appreciate, you know, for a series that is so interesting in doubling things and revisiting ideas, this um, and this is something I was saying to Colleen as part of this conversation last night is this movie really successfully avoids a lot of the pitfalls of prequel movies. Um, and what I mean by that is we're in a time where we're completely inundated with like, you know, mega series that are like a gazillion movies. And also there's a prequel TV series and there's this, that, and the other, um, you know, the, the whole Disney apparatus, for example, I, that's not the only, you're not interested in how Han Solo got his name. No, but, but here, <laughs> this is it though, because that wasn't fascinating it, it is, to you. <laughs> you know, you're, you're bringing up an almost perfect example because it's like, you know, right now they've got that series for star Wars, Ashoka, Ashoka Asuka, yeah, Asuka, or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, and it's based off of a side character who was in a prequel cartoon series several years ago. And they're retreading so much territory that there's like exact scenes that are being recreated in this new series that were already shown in the cartoon. It's like, what are we doing? You are literally just pumping out the same thing over and over and over again. And this movie is not interested in doing that. The only stretch where it's really doing any of that is that part where it, as I complained about during the uh, overview, um, that part where they are showing what's going on at the shack, just because that was so covered and honestly much more powerful not seeing it on the screen. Um, but mostly everything else is additive. It's adding little details about these characters' relationships that contradict things that they tell us in season one or or it's expanding something about the world. And I mean, even the bit where we've got like Chris Isaac, when, when 
Cole calls him up. He's at a standoff that's in front of a school bus full of children. <laughs> the children are wailing and crying. And there's several federal agents with drawn guns on a couple of like generic floozy looking characters and the a guy who we presume is the bus driver. And this is all just playing out in the background or to brief cutaways while um, Chris Isaac, Isaac is talking on the talk. phone <laughs> with Gordon Cole. We never get any explanation of that. It's like he is so much more interested in asking questions or adding weird bullshit to this world than he is in like, okay, well, let's get to the point where the self-destruction of Laura that we know is coming. Like he's he's happy to like take the sideways path. So we see all this weird shit, you know? Um, and that's what we love in Twin Peaks, you know? <laughs> Um, I, I enjoyed in this beginning part, uh, there was a scene that stuck out to me that I don't think I ever really noticed before. And it's been a while since I watched this. It's been a few years. But there's the scene when they go to uh, the diner. Haps is what the diner is called. And uh, they briefly talk to a man named Jack, who has a pin that says, say hello to Jack. But he, he crosses the hello and says goodbye. So it says say goodbye to Jack. And they're like, just three like they're like oh who can we talk to about this Teresa Banks that was uh murdered and he's like you can talk to you know like Irene or whatever the hell her name is like the the wait you know the main waitress the, the Norma of this world but they're in this weird room in the back of this diner where it's him standing and there's a man at a little table with a lamp that keeps going off and there's a man sitting in a doorway who looks very much like so, some of the bearded men we see uh there's a bearded man in this convenient store like for like a table sort of moment that happens recurrently in this movie and we do see more of that uh, uh at uh, in large quantities in season three but it's just like he's just sitting there like not looking at anything not saying anything almost catatonic and the light lamp keeps flashing and then as they leave the guy jack's like did you get that lamp working yet and it's just so off-putting mm -hmm. and it's like definitely yeah. this undercurrent of badness that i keep going back to it's just such an off-putting moment that that precedes a whole off-putting uh dialogue with this main waitress who's kind of like a bitch for no reason. everybody in this town's a bitch for no reason and uh and just really really aggressive well they don't trust the feds i don't blame them for that but you know like... <laughs> but it's also like it's also just kind of like it's just yeah, yeah like it's just like oh was she a nice girl i guess and it's like okay jesus Jeez. <laughs> yeah and, and especially funny about that room that you mentioned is they walk away from it and you can see it in the background of the shot as they sit at the table and it really is just this weird gray like gross weird. room in the back yeah. of this diner that is different like, than understand. all the rest of its surroundings and stuff it's i don't bizarre. understand what it is because it doesn't seem like they it's walked nothing. into yeah. it <laughs> So that it, they it's, went it's in a, and then went in the back to ask who to talk to, which is an odd thing. It's just like, a David Lynch space for weird little guys to sit in. I mean, that's I am a, always trying to put the puzzle piece in, even though it's not a puzzle. <laughs> it's a fucking perfection board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but that's just it. It's never a puzzle box with him. It's always there's some bullshit that's in there just to be bullshit. It's like yeah. that that one comedian a while back who was like. <laughs> I'm David Lynch. My specialty is putting one to four weird guys in a room and saying what if there what was happens. a room and what if there were one, one to four weird, four weird guys, guys in, in a room? <laughs> what if there was a blonde and also a brunette? <laughs> it's um, true. But but it's just like that can't be like that has to be some sort of hearkening to that convenience store room. Oh, like certainly. Yeah, it's certainly. like it has to be something, right? 
so but like what i don't know is it just like a sign that this is bad news and shoes or something like i don't know um yeah it's also part of the electricity thing which really comes in in this movie and we'll see a lot more of it in the return um a lot more of it a lot more of it they will never shut the fuck up about it in the return but um (laughs) i do love uh we have that harry dean stanton moment where he's just kind of staring at that um that like utility pole and he's just like i love him He's so good in this. There's I just to drill down on that bit. He's the basically he's the superintendent at the trailer park and uh he gets harassed multiple times by the cops when, you know, Kiefer and Isaac come by first and then uh when Chris Isaac comes back alone later and then eventually Coop comes back to try to figure out what happened to him and he's getting progressively more aggrieved by all of these uh extremely strange fbi agents that keep showing up he's like i don't know what you weird motherfuckers are doing here blah 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 (laughs) he's like when they first bug him he's got this sign on the door that's like absolutely no bothering before 9 a.m and they realize as they knock on the door it's before 9 a.m so they get their badges ready really quickly (laughs) and be like like this guy's gonna come out hot and he he just comes out and he's like he's like oh yet another person coming around to see this trailer this woman that disappeared and he just like kind of helplessly looks at the cops and he goes it's just more shit i gotta do (laughs) and it's it is easily one of the most memorable line readings i can think of ever it is the most relatable delivery of of Uh, anything there's another part where the part where he's staring at that electric pole and and something like weird and off-putting is happening, something supernatural or strange. But um, and we see this pull again. Uh, we see it in I think we see it in the first season or second season. We see it definitely again in the third season. Yeah. And we see him in a different context too. But he there's an awkward moment, and then he just says, I've already gone places. I just want to stay where I am. And it was like, ain't that the fucking truth? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's I've after... never identified with a person more in my life than <laughs> I identify with Harry Dean Stanton and Firewalk with me. Yeah, it's when it's when Special Agent Chris Isaac is investigating uh, the uh, Teresa Banks's trailer, and this. Uh... This this person I can only describe as like a little gremlin of a person shows up with like with like a soot black face like not not like not like blackface or something like that but like no, somebody like who's been like cr- crawling around in like a coal mine for like an hour or something like that um shows up and is like holding an ice pack to their face and is like kind of just peeking in and they they're like uh hello did did you know her um and, she and like then they, she bails out and that's when and they look over to harry dean stanton and that's when he's just kind of staring off into space and he's like you know (laughs) i've been places i i just want to be here now (laughs) i don't want to do anything (laughs) uh um uh we'll we'll keep a lookout for any more uh weird little gremlin people who've been crawling around uh in the dark (laughs) somewhere uh i wonder if we might see more of that uh in the future it's funny because I misremember this movie and I don't know if this is a missing pieces thing. Um, I'm going to have to, like, obviously when we watch the missing pieces to talk about it, maybe I'll verify. But for some reason, I he reaches for that ring underneath the trailer and it kind of just stops like before he really touches it or whatever. But in my head, it stops like he picks it up and then it like freeze frames. And I don't know why I have that um memory that misremembering yeah i don't know it kind of 
the the cut in the film it kind of freeze frames it kind of does freeze frame like right before he grabs the ring and then it kind of fades out in a really weird way um i i don't know i i have not seen the missing pieces i'm excited to bring that perspective to the uh episode because that's it, kind it'll of the be one good. i'm really wondering if it was like somewhere like <laughs> poochie went back to his other planet then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> chris isaac died on the way back to his home planet um um should we dive into the david bowie stuff god all <laughs> right can begin like, let's I don't okay so I'll, I'll block out this scene more specifically first, and maybe we can go into it from there. So um, we cut away to uh, to the FBI in Philadelphia. Um, we've got Coop, Albert, and um, God, what's his name? David Lynch's character. Now, of course, I'm spacing Gordon. it all of a sudden. Gordon. All sitting around in the same office. All of the lads are together. The boys are back. Uh, really good moment for all of us. But Coop is real fucking anxious. He's like walking around and he's like, oh, man, Gordon, you know, it's like, I think he says it's February 16th. Uh, you, you know what that means? And it's like, oh, yeah, I do know what that means. Okay, we don't know what it means. Uh, eventually, it comes out like Coop has had a dream. He's had a vision. And we know all about Coop's visions from the series proper. So we know it's probably something. And so he gets, he sticks himself in this loop where he goes and he looks into one of the security cameras in the hallway. And then he steps into the security office and is looking down the vision of that same camera. And then he goes back and looks into it. And he goes back and looks into it again. In the background, an elevator opens. And... David Bowie walks out wearing the most like Miami Vice looking ass <laughs> outfit. It's so fucking weird. Um, it's really good, but it's so fucking weird. Um, and like he's like kind of power walking and, and, like into the office in like a weird kind of off-putting way. Um, Coop goes back to the room. He, he's like walking up behind Coop. Coop doesn't see him. Coop goes back to the room to look into the security camera and he can still see himself standing there and uh um we see Bowie david walking. bowie's character yeah. walk around um and so then he comes into the room that albert and gordon are hanging out in coop in pursuit and he's like gordon is like nothing's wrong he's like oh this is the missing philip jeffries and he's just walked into the office it's so great he's been missing for like 10 years and now he's just back that's really <laughs> awesome everything worked out okay and fine in the end <laughs> yeah and and so then like in in a bad imitation of a louisiana accent or something uh bowie starts going into like this uh this whole thing about oh well first of all we're not going to talk about judy and it's like well i i wasn't going to either but uh do you have something you'd like to share <laughs> with the class uh mr jeffries and so presumably he's talking to the other agents in the room seemingly kind of frantically we get a couple of like cut in shots of him like sitting in a chair looking like he's yelling and sweaty and stuff but the vast vast majority of it is indistinct and the phrases that come through are um they don't make any sense so it doesn't matter um through yeah, a bunch like of like we see like the leaping lad yeah he's like yeah. i was in the convenience store with them i was in the, one of their meetings and we see like a glimpse of that sort of like little man from another place and and like the the woods keeper or whatever we call him i forget uh not woods keeper but it's something like that the um guy covered like it dressed like a lumberjack basically and yeah he's like yeah. we live inside a dream there's like an old the old woman is there the mrs shawfan that we'll see later uh a monkey is screaming it's 
you know, the, the little man's like, oh, it's a formica table. Norman Bovia. Here's freaking the inside of Frank's open mouth. Like, <laughs> yeah. So the, really the So the visual effect is it's like I, I think what it's trying to be or it's trying to evoke maybe not very literally is like this thing of like being in between two channels on an old dial based like television set or something where there's like a lot of like visual static and it's kind of moving freely between variously clear variously unclear images of uh philip jeffries talking to the fbi dudes and this classic david lynch uh, convenience store with a bunch of weird little guys in it. Um, and what if that was so, a convenience store? <laughs> I mean, four or five little guys. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. David and, and it's it seems like the main point in this scene is to give us a sense that, well, first of all, it gives us this name Judy, which we'll have some use of in the future. It's it's going to be tough, but it's going to be there. We'll get there. Um, and it gives us this sense that all of these forces are kind of interconnected with each other, right? We we lit, we see the little man from another planet sitting down at the table with the guy with the fucking pointy mask jumping around and shit. Leaping uh, lad. The leaping lad or jumping man or I whatever know. the fuck he's called. Um, we've got like, uh, um, we've got David Lynch's kid who looks like little David Lynch with the cream corn from that he's also got a version of the leaping lad mask which he keeps taking on and putting off sometimes when he takes it on and puts it off you can see the monkey's face briefly so there's some association with those characters and images um we're we're seeing these are all bits of the same whole essentially i think that's what that's not what this means per se but it is what we can take moving forward which will then kind of freight this with meaning in the future um Certainly some thought went into it, but it's very confusing in the moment yeah. and extremely off-putting. It's off-putting, um, it's scary, and then at the end, he just disappears, and they're like, he's gone, and you hear, like, you don't even see David Lynch, you just hear me. He's like, he's gone. Like, he's yeah. gone. And I watched the video, and Chet Desmond just disappeared, too, and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks for telling yeah, me. Yeah, well, well it's, it's communicated in, like, maybe the most awkward way possible, which is Albert picks up the phone across the room, and he goes... I'm just getting word that Philip Jeffries was never here. And also Chris Isaac disappeared. And it's like, wait, what? And then they go into the security tape room and they like, no, he was here. He's on the tape. (laughs) Who's telling you he wasn't here? (laughs) But see what I want to know here, and this is me maybe just misunderstanding. Like this scene is weird, right? But when he, at the very beginning of the scene, Coop says, uh, you know, it's this date and I was worried about it because of this dream I had. Yeah. So is this scene supposed to be his him explaining the dream or is this scene happening? And that's no, this never scene is happening. Dream. I think I think what Coop had is he had some sort of vision of this hallway and of, you know, of something approaching behind him. And that's why he gets in this loop of like looking into the screen and looking back and like, Which I'm pretty sure this is where it is. I'm going to see him come through here and... Like, that whole scene is very reminiscent of the end of season two when he's going through the yeah right yeah absolutely yeah, yeah it, it's very very similar to that sort of thing him staring this and that doesn't but, Bowie uh, when he comes into the room and Coop is there say something about like that's not that, even like that's not the, the he said something yeah. like that's not who you think it is or something yeah, yeah. I think I wrote yeah. it down uh-huh. um yeah he says yeah, says, I think he, he isn't who he's supposed to be or something like yeah. that. So uh-huh. yeah. yeah, we already have this implication of 
the coop doppelganger situation here, both in the videotape and in the way Jeffries is reacting to him. So this feels like something a bit out of time. And there's a couple things with that specifically related to coop. When we see him, the brief times we see him in this movie, he seems to be speaking across time. And I think that we have to think of that as being what's going on relating to what's going on with him being stuck in the black lodge now. And if he is trying to do something, he is maybe trying to do it from there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He's trying to influence what's going on with Laura. He's trying to make sure she doesn't wind up in the Black Lodge, and he fails to do that. She winds up there with him at the end. Uh, that will come back in The Return. That is what The Return is about, essentially. Return, <laughs> but, it, yeah, I was just going to actually say that. We will see a lot of this in The Return, because yeah, essentially I, we never see Coop in real time except for a very brief moment yeah and um, (laughs) yeah and i i don't think that's a spoiler because it's just not even going to be comprehensible until we see no we're just not we cannot think of agent cooper as a person rooted in linear time anymore yeah yeah he's he's done doing that basically um he's somewhere else doing something else now (laughs) um which Uh, maybe he was always kind of pointed towards but now that's that's happened that hard line has been crossed um I'm going to take this moment because I had to mention the visual static effect here to talk about that a little. That's a motif that comes across to this movie a lot. It's what opens the film. It's the opening credits of the film take place on a field of TV static. Um, And then uh, immediately the TV gets smashed as soon as it's over. Now you can read the obvious joke in there with the cancellation of the show. And now here's the movie to try to tie up the story. Right. But it's preserved across the whole thing. Um, and especially whenever there seems to be some sort of distortion or speaking across worlds or time or universes, we see this effect show up. We see this effect show up briefly when Laura's having dreams later where she's seeing into the red room and Coop is telling her not to take the ring. Um, and Annie, we didn't mention that. Annie briefly, briefly, briefly shows up next to Laura in her bed in her like post-murdered state. Like she's- No, I did mention that. Oh, did you mention it? Maybe you did. I don't did. know. Maybe I did. Maybe I uh, meant you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, she shows up in her, like, post-murdered state, like, as a corpse, and is like, I'm Annie. I have I have spent time with Laura and Dale. And she's talking to Laura as she says this. <laughs> and she's like, <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Um, so there is something going on with this TV static motif and talking across time and stuff. You can find eight-hour YouTube video essays about how, like, Twin Peaks is like about the you know relationship between uh, television it's storytelling and and uh, the audience and, like, and the audience expectations. Yeah, yeah you can blah, also blah. think yeah. about it for thirty seconds if you watch this movie <laughs> and you see that. Um, it's it's very obvious. It's in there. It's part of what we're supposed to be drawing out of it. Um, yeah, we are viewers in somebody's self destruction. Well, right. well, destruction of right. self. Yeah. Right, and and that is uh, something. The movie. I mean, that's that's both what's like difficult. I the whole series circles this to some degree but the movie again really in your face about it is this like I'm not I'm not sure exactly what to call it but this sort of towing the line between the exploitation for entertainment's sake and the exploitation of like or or is it not exploitation because you know, this is a story. These are characters. These are things that happen in real life in varying ways. Uh, maybe not so much the Red Room shit, but the <laughs> the kinds of things that happen to Laura are the kinds of things that happen to real people and are, you know, often exploited for storytelling, for media purposes, etc. Um, and 
the movie has a strange relationship this movie in particular uh even beyond the series even beyond the return has a strange relationship with uh how it wants us to enjoy or you know experience that versus how it wants to call attention to the exploitation itself um it's tough like there there's a lot of scenes where it's just like it's laura topless and she's being sexy you know and uh you know and it's all supposed to be about like it is bad that women like this are exploited in the way that they are you know and it's like how do you resolve that tension i think part of what the film is doing is choosing not to resolve that tension uh but it makes it hard viewing in in some parts that's throughout lynch right i mean that, that is throughout lynch yeah. the, the the discomfort and the the forced sexuality in so many of his films i mean blue velvet and and whatever i mean it's that's a theme that runs throughout his and we don't want to talk too much about his own personal psychology but there were the shit that happened to david lynch that i think really informs a lot of this confusion about violence right. and sexuality and and right. the idea that american culture has this confusion about violence and sexuality right so oh yeah absolutely yeah lynch loves a tortured woman he, he truly does um yeah i another a place that shows up really powerfully is in the uh um the roadhouse scene which we talked about briefly as like so the the whole context of that is donna kind of is spending this whole god we have to talk about donna maybe we maybe we should talk about donna before we get into that can we talk about double donna yeah we should talk about donna um so donna is recast we're not gonna talk about donna yeah well we're not gonna talk about and then i'm like and then i disappear instantly and then miguel ferrer calls you on the phone and is like chris was never here um weird i thought you were kidding this is how it works um this is how it works in lynch um yeah, so Donna is recast here. And I think there's, you can find internet speculation and stuff about the tabloid shit at the time for like her deteriorating, uh, Lara Flynn Boyle's deteriorating relationship with the Twin Peaks franchise and the behind the scenes stuff around that. And also part of the reason Coop is like used in such weird, chopped up, abstracted ways. And like, you know, I think this is when Lara Flynn Boyle was still with uh kyle mclaughlin in real life i'm not 100 percent sure and i know kyle mclaughlin had concerns about being the center of the film um because he was afraid of being typecast too much as uh agent dale cooper sorry about that kyle you didn't dodge those allegations (laughs) uh but uh you know he so i there's kind of a reticence for them both to engage with this obviously kyle is there and shows up big for the return but in ways maybe you don't necessarily expect him to um but uh so there's like there's like meta reasons that right you know donna is recast here but i don't think you can ignore in a david lynch film when there is so much stuff about the doubling and transformation of identity and like uh you know how he plays with that and then you see a character who is donna and it is not the same woman it is pointedly not the same woman and god we know how much she loves to turn an accident into the like into the text in his work right. i mean that's where we get bob from you know so right. um and that's the central villain of the story you know <laughs> depending on how you view it uh so i i i don't know do do we have any big thoughts about this uh, I, um, 
Okay, so here's the thing. This Donna is weird compared to other Donna. Right. And I and okay, so this Donna is Moira Kelly. Kelly. And yeah. the other one, of course, was Laura. Famed nineties hottie. Yeah. Oh yeah, she's beautiful, but she's but not Donna. Not too, right. Not Donna. Right. <laughs> she's and, not. And she's she's not the same person. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Then I'm trying to. I'm. But I'm looking at her character, and she's so earnest, and she's so tender with Laura and she's so like treacly like so like overly sweet with her and mm-hmm. in a way that is like that doesn't feel like the Donna no. we had in the show where she was a little reserved and a little sarcastic and kind of a little a bit more of an edge and, I, and I'm talking about like actual first scene first episodes Donna not like I'm in a Scooby-Doo game Donna where right. her edge became like I'm trying to be edgy like, but I, like but I think even that I'm gonna smoke a cigarette to be a bad girl and like kiss James through the thing. Like this Donna <laughs> is a completely different imagining of Donna, and so it's off. It's to me, like, am I supposed to take away? Like, I know it's a different person, obviously, but like, is this sort of character the way the character is? Am I supposed to take away like this death changed her so profoundly that like she changed everything about herself, or am I just supposed to? understand that Moira Kelly is not Laura Flamboyle. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, well, I I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it is intentional to lean into that because that's exactly Lynch's instinct as a creator is to do that. And it's on the page as you say because it's like even when you're saying like oh I'm comparing it to episode 1 Donna, not like later on when she's like putting on this affectation of femme fatale or whatever, but it's like this Donna doesn't feel like she would ever even do that, you know? I mean, it's like it, this feels almost like an entirely different person who could have grown in an opposite direction. There's also just some straight up inconsistency with how we know Donna talks about Laura in season 1, right? Um because you know, in season one, Donna has this sense that Laura was in some troubles, but she is not like a Donna who went to the club with her, got fucked up, got into like a risky sexual situation and was rescued from it by Laura. And it was part of Laura's self-realization of her own self-destruction. You know, that seems like that would have been crucial, crucial info for Donna to have in season one that she just does not seem to have. So it's like, it almost feels like we are supposed to treat this as an entirely different character, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really odd to me. I don't love this Donna. I know a lot of people do prefer this Donna. It is what it is. I, I, I don't prefer or not prefer. I I think different character. You know, this is yeah. a different character, basically. I mean functionally for all house. intents and purposes. Yeah. yeah. So like like her house isn't the same, so it's like yeah been a different person her house isn't the same her family doesn't appear around her crucially like we have all these other weird things like fly norma in to have her appear in a 30 second scene where she is by the cash register and goes shelly go help laura but like we even have the other fucking waitress sitting in the corner with a with nosebleed. A nose. <laughs> but we but we don't have Doc Hayward. We don't have the mom that we spent all of season two like bullshitting around about with the Ben Horn thing. Also, tragic lack of Ben here. There, yeah. There's no room for him. There's nothing for him to do in this terrible. plot. There's no but, steel mills. I mean, there's yeah, no yeah. Mills but like, But I just love seeing him. He's so amazing in that <laughs> role. Um but yeah, like it, it feels deliberate. Like she's cut off from all the signatures around her that make her Donna, you know? Um, 
and she talks about James in this wistful, like, I love James. And, you know, like, like Laura even calls her out on it. Yeah. She's like, what is, like, what is up with you, you weirdo? Like, and, and that. We're talking about the same James. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Early, right? Th- that <laughs> speaks differently to how Donna interacts with James in season one. I mean, they do wind up together, but it feels like this weird thing where James is like, all eager to be involved with her and she's like i you know i don't know this is fucking weird my friend just died you know and as you say she plays a more reserved emotional being in that in the lara flynn boyle interpretation of the character is seemingly deliberately different here i i don't know i don't really know quite what to make of it it's funny too because i think that roadhouse scene would make more sense with lara flynn boyle's um right um, yeah absolutely like sorry if that was like a, uh, like the point and it just went no it wasn't the point but it is part of the point in the yeah, sense that like, like it, it feels like it would have gone sense. it would have gone differently it would have made more sense but you know she does play the role in a way like she's really like i am unsure about this whereas our lara flynn boyle donna would have been like it's important for me to seem like a badass right now yeah. you know and it's like and so we get can, a little bit of that at the beginning when she's like like takes the shot and right. like, contacts Laura right. while she's doing it and she's like all right let's do it then Laura's right like, but you can right. see her like almost like immediately regret it like when they get into that back room um that and it's like you get that like very pharmaceutical shot where it's like this like fisheye framed camera that's supposed to be her first person and she's getting fucked up yeah. and it's like all, yeah, going all around kind of. uh, yeah and like you know she notices she dropped her sweater and she's like it's so important that i pick up this sweater and it's this huge like belabored action this is this donna that's not lara flynn boyle donna yeah. you know like so i don't know <laughs> um where was I going with this? I what I was trying to get to was that scene in the back back room yeah. at the roadhouse. Yes, yeah, was, we were we were uh, working towards it, but we wanted to kind of yeah. But I interrupted I with, the Don, Donna, with Donna talk. Yeah, um, okay. but it's that scene is really it really cuts it, it really walks that line on this thing I'm talking about with like the balance of the exploitation and the you need to feel bad about witnessing this exploitation thing where it's like you know there's like naked chicks hanging out there's like this like hard driving blues rock soundtrack that is actually kind of sick yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) it kind of bangs it like it's definitely it's definitely also supposed to evoke the red room right it's red it's got this constant weird soundtrack it's got all these like kind of like i don't know like graven images of a different sort than the ones we see in the red room but that evoke the same kind of vibe right it's like um, everyone's nude and dancing and grinding and like sweaty and it, and it looks like it's supposed to be fun but you know like most people there probably do not want to actually be there and yeah we even and, and, see that happen with laura like at the very beginning of this scene when she's still in in uh yeah uh the round the roadhouse proper and she's like crying and then the the two guys that she's being paid to like entertain are like come over and she like kind of sobers herself up from crying crying and is like hey big boy yeah you want to fuck and it's like like you know she doesn't want to be doing any of this but she doesn't seem like she thinks she has many other choices like this is just who she is like and it's really upsetting yeah and and it really um it really speaks to this thing that I think is really effective about this film, which is that, you know, when you, when you 
enter Twin Peaks season one and a lot of certainly the season one stretch is about these differing characters, different interpretations of Laura. And they all know her as this one thing. She was the girl that brought me the meals on wheels. She was the girl that helped uh that he he was helping tutor the uh horn kid right uh mm-hmm. she was the girl that was like you know um she was the prom queen right she was bobby's girlfriend she was maybe also james's girlfriend right we have all of these different interpretations and it's like well how could she be all these things to these different people well it was killing her to do that <laughs> and that's and that's really what we're seeing in this scene it's like it's like she is in this constant state of having to perform a certain way of cool. being for each mm-hmm. and every individual person that she interacts with um and that scene in that room is the is a wake up for her because she is with when when she notices that donna is getting like kind of groped on basically um not in, whatever uh she's with Ronette and she is like doing a kind of like she's doing a kind of like dummy game with one of these two guys she's entertaining or she's like get under the table you know and and they're like and she's kind of like assume this attitude of like settling in she's like here we go again this is just like at one-eyed jacks you know like she knows she has to put this energy on to be able to survive this experience and have her money so she can have her cocaine so she can keep being every kind of person for every kind of person that she interacts with right and then she notices what's happening to donna and it immediately brings her to this core of an actual person like oh my god we need to get the fuck out of here and it's always with this like primal scream that she's immediately back in the space of like no, i like I... that with the donna thing it wasn't even so much that donna was getting like groped on but it was that donna had her sweater around her and she was like panicked at the thought of donna trying to be like her right like, right and she like she's like don't wear my stuff and donna's like i'm not wearing your stuff and she's like jock bring her home and he does which i was like that's kind of gentlemanly from such a <laughs> right. well jock's like, not trying to fuck up a good thing with laura he's already got right. a promise on her coming back so it's like that's the kind of guy jock is he's like i'm gonna right. keep like i'm gonna keep the source happy so but, yeah um, that is weird but, but it's like also i get it it's not inconsistent with the character but uh, no, but I, but it's like it's the fear of like seeing her wearing her her clothes is like right. oh no like I'm going to drag her down this path. Right. She wants to be like me, and I don't want her to be like me right. because I'm going to probably be dead. Soon. Yeah, I don't want her to be like me because I don't even have me anymore. And that's in right. that scene, not a whole lot later, when she tells James that Laura's gone. Like you, that train is already left Laura disappeared. Yeah, yeah, your Laura is done. You know, it's not it's not a thing anymore. Something um, about this scene, I do want to talk about. Yeah. Um, is we see the log lady for a moment as yes. she's going into the um, I always want to just say the bang bang bar I know it's not <laughs> yeah, and that's what it should be called it, that's better. what the sign says but um and she says like a few things log lady type things to her but she says um, all goodness is in jeopardy and that's like important and it's not so important here but it gets important later in season three when we like learn more about laura as like a person and i just think that this whole thing is good because for a moment she like speaks to laura like on her level like things are fucked and i know that yeah and Mm -hmm. if you don't stop this like fire from getting out of control it's going to consume everything right right and it's just nice to have laura laura be spoken to because i don't think even donna speaks to her on her level i think donna speaks to her on a like 
let me take care of you because I'm your best friend. And then let me hold you, small little baby. But the black lady looks like right at her and talks to her like, shit's fucked. Yeah. And it's going to keep getting fucked. You know, like, and I just think that that's nice. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I yeah. No, it. no, I agree. And and I think there's a lot of that throughout this. Like you see and and this is a really a a uh what do I want to say? This is really a hat tip to the acting performance here because Laura, we've never seen her for on screen for real for more than like a couple of seconds really in that series proper uh when she's usually doing something weird in the red room. I mean Arguably, there's Maddie, but Maddie's deliberately a different character, even if she is supposed to be an echo of Laura in some ways. Um, but like, you know, she we see her in this like this performance she has to put on to be a sex worker at the bar. Right. But she also has this performance that she has to put on when she's with Bobby. So we see them going to this drug meetup thing. Right. And she's like extremely giggly and like like oh bobby take care of me <laughs> thank you for getting me my drugs I, I, bobby you're so sweet thank you blah 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 and it's like this is not her and we know it's not the drugs making her like this because we see her on the drugs being other ways right this is another mechanism of like this is the kind of person i am to bobby this is the kind of person i am to this person you know right. when she goes to harold's place to drop off the diary she is this desperate extremely vulnerable person right um when she is seeking comfort from James, she is also this, like, she's this calm but vulnerable person, right? She is this, like, uh, like yes, I, I do appreciate you, but I am also troubled and I need your, like, she is performing a certain thing for each person that she's interacting with. And it never like, feels inconsistent to the character, which I think is so impressive. It really it is. is impressive. Just, yeah. And it's very realistic as a former teenage girl. Right, right. It's very realistic. And I actually am reminded of that Mad Men quote when Sally says, I'm so many people. And like, I remember when I first watched Mad Men, I was like, oh my God, like that is such a real thing when you're a teenage girl. Like you mm -hmm. are so many different people to so many, you're so many different people to so many different people. And it's like really hard, you know, and it's hard to juggle it. And if you're even like the littlest bit fucked up, like, I was <laughs> it's really hard because then you are literally like there's a lot of weird parallels with Laura's life here in my life as a teenage girl that is like not great and don't really want to get into it but uh but you know I mean my my I didn't get murdered by my dad or anything <laughs> my dad's a good guy but um could have been worse but, you know, <laughs> yeah, been worse, but it also wasn't great so I really uh enjoy it you wanted to say something about her and Harold you mentioned it earlier that their relationship is different than it's presented in the show. Uh, th there's an element of just like, you know, she feels like she has to provide him with a certain amount of sexual co coercion to get like this protection and respect from him. Right. Um, and it's clear. And we see from the way he eventually is almost sort of predating upon Donna in yeah, the television series. It's like, yeah. it really sheds a light on like Donna is going in there and she's like, I need to get more information from you about Laura. And he's like, well, I don't really know, but why don't you stay a while and let's share some stories. And maybe it's like, no, he knew 
and he was getting something out of Laura from it. And he was always angling at this thing with Donna. You know, he's just a fucking creep. So yeah, it's like creep. these yeah. like reads of Harold of like, well, he's troubled and he has this agoraphobia thing and stuff. I mean, he does, but the movie tells us pretty explicitly, no, he's just a fucking creep. Like he's even creep and he's, he's using it as like a yeah, it, like he, he, yeah, he's like a serially he's like one of these like he's like one of these sad boys online who yeah. like try to get yeah. female yeah. attention or something. Yeah. He's like whatever the nineties version of that is. And that's he, what Harold he's is. The only one that she trusts with her diary. Her diary. And, and then he eventually awful person is it, like the only one that she has like right her best friend it's and then crazy. he explicitly tries to use that to sexually coerce her best friend in the future like it's yeah. fucking crazy mm-hmm. when you yeah. when you start connecting the pieces on that it really is crazy i'm glad that we like look back on that because i really want to know what you were going to say about it yeah it's it's not a huge point but it's like harold's in there for 30 seconds and it totally blows open his plot point when you mm-hmm. see it. you know it's like oh <laughs> this is just always what this was you know and that that's what i'm talking about how this avoids like being a terrible prequel in a lot of ways because it's like it's it is good at using brief moments to give us something new about a character that we previously had like you mentioned that thing with Shelly earlier not to backtrack on stuff already but just like okay. you, you know the thing of like you know Shelly did not like Laura very much and it's probably because they were like sharing a guy etc like it's all the regular reasons you wouldn't like somebody but like you know Shelly wasn't like I fucking hated Laura <laughs> when you get to season one it's like oh yeah Laura yeah we did the meals on wheels together it's like oh yeah it's she's none not of these... speaking ill of the dead or anything she just like didn't really fucking care about her. yeah didn't really <laughs> fucking care about Laura and now all of a sudden she's dead right and it's like oh it's weird. it must be weird to think like oh like I was fucking her boyfriend but now she's dead. Like that must feel weird, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you and, can't and necessarily that adds... like tell your friends, "Oh, I feel kind of weird about something because I'm fucking someone." Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and it, it, again, it just adds something very small but like meaningful to that character in that couple of seconds of screen time. So, yeah. Yeah, it's so good. Let's see what else can we talk about. There's just so fucking much. It's like crazy. Movie's <laughs> <He's> wild. <laughs> so funny. Um. I'm trying to think of what else makes sense to dive into here. Um, Bobby, I don't, the guy. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can talk about Bobby for a second. I don't think there's a ton to discuss yet, but this will be kind of a thing that's interesting to keep in mind going forward. And again, it does kind of inform his sort of like generic disaffection at the beginning of the story. It's like, you know, he kind of plays that off as like, well, you know, I am kind of sad about Laura, even though I was two-timing her, but he had all this other stuff going on with drug debt, and he murdered a guy, and, like, you know, he was also explicitly feeling disrespected and used by Laura when, you know, she kicks the bucket. So, like, it it casts a lot of interesting things onto his character moving forward from there. Yeah, um, I mean, I think Bobby had one of the best redemption arcs and i'm excited to get into season three bobby uh well first of all i'm like highly attracted to Ashbrook, so it's like he's got some whatever. real silver like, fox vibes going on in the return fox. i was just gonna say he's a silver fox and and i just really like what they end up doing with him so it's funny to see this sort of like precursor to the series bobby who is often very dumb 
but mm. ultimately kind of like one of the grades, <laughs> like yeah. when it comes to characters in Twin Peaks. Um, so this this sort of like tough guy, like, yeah, I'll take $10,000 worth of Coke. Uh, like, we'll go meet in the middle of the woods sort of shit. Like, just, I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting, like, what mm. they do with him. And I do kind of like his ultimate understanding that Laura does not really love him. Like, yeah. I, I like I like that he kind of is like, Okay. Like Bobby's okay. a no bullshit guy. So it makes sense that he would eventually come to the no bullshit conclusion, you know, like exactly. it, it's, it's consistent with his character. Uh, the beginning of, or not the beginning of the movie, but the beginning of the Twin Peaks segment of the movie that happens about 30 minutes in uh, <laughs> is, is Bobby is, we mentioned this already in the summary, but Bobby is suspicious that Laura is two timing him. Right. So let's, Let's think about if it had come out while she was alive and he'd figured out that it was James who was cucking him. Like, Bobby would have killed James. Like, yeah. James would have died, you know? Like, James is lucky that. that Laura passed away because <laughs> he would have been destroyed. I absolutely would have absolutely loved the scene like that where he just um, fucking Jared Leto's him, like, in, like, Fight Club. <laughs> like, yeah. Pummels him to a ball. There's also like a there's a bit of sympathy that I can't help but have for uh for Bobby in this because again he's he's kind of no bullshit I mean not that he's not two timing Laura because he is not that he's not just a little asshole because he is that as well but like you know during that scene where she's upstairs with James and they're like I think they're fucking in the gym or something like that it's like a really weird yeah. <laughs> place yeah, they're in yeah. um but like he's uh he's bobby is downstairs in the school entrance and he sees her photo her prom queen photo in the like trophy case and he's like i love you baby and he kisses the trophy case where her picture is on the other side and it's like there's a little bit of heartache that i have for bobby in that moment where that's happening right then and it's also one of these like kind of like extremely unsubtle david lynch visual like practices thing it's like you are kissing a piece of glass that separates you from an abstract photo of your girlfriend you are not kissing your girlfriend you know also, <laughs> like, he clearly uh, loves shelly so maybe he just loves the idea of prom queen Laura, of course right? I mean, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And he loves yeah. the idea. The idea and not only does he love the idea, he loves the idea of it inside of the trophy case. Yeah. Is, is what yeah, yeah. it is. It's, uh, it's like it's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love like when he confronts her and she's like, "Bobby, stop it!" And he's like, "You're right, babe." Then he does that crazy like monkey walk like backwards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> While that like awful pseudo hip hop song plays, like that, that is like yeah. one of the yeah. So speaking of crazy songs in this, the song that's playing when she finds out that there's pieces missing in her diary page like a page missing it's fucking amazing it's like this crazy like jazz live thing and then the yeah, guy yeah. tells and like everyone goes Whoa! and there's all the like, horns and stuff it's <laughs> like super grooving to it and i'm like this discovery ruined what was like an actual good like jam sesh she was having in her bed yeah, yeah i know like, she's like smoking <laughs> with one one hand just, like... <laughs> also when she goes to harold and she's like I hid my diary really well. You hid it behind the one piece of furniture in your room. Yeah. It was like not that hard to find. <laughs> it's literally behind your bureau. There's like three places it could have been, and that was one of them. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, if you hadn't realized that your abuser is your dad yet, then like <laughs> maybe you do think <laughs> right. that's hidden pretty well. <laughs> like, right. I, 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 maybe if I knew this guy had like regular, easy access to my room during every weekday, yeah. <laughs> I'd be a little more concerned about it. Uh, anyhow, anyway, anyway, so 
I'm not sure. Like, I'm not sure what else there really is to talk about. Do we want to talk about the very ending and some of the imagery with like the monkey and the angel and stuff like that? Okay, so we we skipped over this moment in the recap, but when she is uh, in her room, there's a couple moments when she's in her room that I really liked as a former teenage girl. Like, like she looks at her, uh, she has this like painting of a angel like giving breakfast to children and it's very cute um but like you know she's starting to suspect that maybe her dad might be the one abusing her or whatever and she like turns and looks at it and she like says is it true like she talks to it and i think that this is a very like realistic portrayal of like being young in your room and just being like looking to like anything like this this thing that's probably been on your wall since you were two years old and is like a comfort to you and you just turn to it like like why is this happening to me right like to this inanimate object but there's this angel that's in the painting and um towards the end she's looking at the painting and the angel disappears from it Bef- um, and, and we should say what's part of what sets this up as well is there's an early conversation between doppeldonna and uh laura where and it's the one where uh Donna's like, well, James is so nice and so hot, and he definitely really understands what's going on with you, and you should definitely marry James, and everything will be fine. Uh, and Laura's like, whatever, shut up. And then Donna asks this weird question about like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then Donna asks this really weird question about like, if you were falling in space, like, do you just keep going the same speed, or are you just going? Are you getting faster? Like, what's going on with that? And you know when you fall in space all the time? Yeah, yeah. You know that thing that happens like all the time. Right. So and, but, like... but Laura is immediately like, yes, that is what's happening with me. And she goes, you know what? You're just going to fall faster and faster and faster. And there aren't going to be any angels there to help you. Um, uh, and that's right, what so happens. It's like death yeah. metal bands love this. Clue. <laughs> they love that. Yeah. They are always fucking throwing that clip in something. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and I was like, I know, I hear you listening to them all the time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, to be fair, it's a hard ass fucking quote. So. It absolutely is. Uh, There's Instagram accounts named after it. It's yeah, great. <laughs> it's a great one. Um, so she looks at this uh as things are, are very quickly spiraling out of control. She looks at this painting and the angel disappears right in front of her eyes, and she's just like, Well, that's fucked up. <laughs> so that's what kind of sets this situation up. Do you want to talk about it, Chris? So, yeah, I, I don't know. So we see the angel disappear from the painting. And the next time we see that image recur is when she's in the train car and, with Ronette and uh, Leland. And we have the, like, dramatic irony piece here that we know this is where Laura gets murdered. And we know Ronette survives barely after a enormous amount of abuse and violence, right? Um, and Ronette is tied up. And Leland is just harassing Laura. He like barely seems to know Ronette is there anymore. And Ronette is kind of saying some stuff like, like, just kill me so that this will be over. She's which is praying. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's praying in a really sad way. Yeah, yeah. Like she's kind of like, I want this to be over. But then she's also like, I'm so dirty and I'm not ready. Please like, don't see me. Yeah, don't yeah. See me. Like she's praying to this God that she's like, it looks like my time is up, but I am not like for lack of a better word like i'm not saved yet like i, I like i haven't confessed my sins yet like, right I'm, yeah I'm, and it, it's I'm not dying in a disgraced state and and it's not going to be good for me if i go now but then right. i would also kind of want to go anyway because this is yeah. fucked up yeah, yeah. yeah. and sign up for this <laughs> so it's really upsetting actually but 
I'm, I'm laughing. It's, it's, it's profoundly upsetting. It's yeah. it's really, really upsetting. And then there's like this very strange, like, and, and again, in a very deliberately staged, strange way of like, this angel appears and it's very much like the kind of effects you would see in a stage play when an angel appears it's just like weird lighting and it and it's it's like she's on like a like either a platform you're not seeing or like hanging from wires or something and she kind of resembles the angel in the painting not like super 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 but it's obviously intended to evoke it um and it's like just this brief like tableau appearance of this this entity and then she disappears and ronette's like her her bindings are broken like her hands are free again this is what enables her to open up the train car which enables mike to throw the ring in which enables laura's escape to the black lodge when she is ultimately killed um so how we interpret those events being linked together i don't know um nor do i am i particularly clear that we're supposed to uh but there is something going on there with this reappearance like maybe not for laura but maybe for ronette but maybe that's in service of what's going on with laura uh i don't i don't know maybe you have more specific thoughts than me i think you're actually more specifically attuned to answer that question (laughs) well we also have the angel at the very end too when she's in the red room with dale and the and she's upset and crying and then this angel appears and then she starts laughing and then she starts kind of like hysterically laughing in a way that like it's like at first it's like oh everything is okay and like nice and like this angel came and you know if you're like even remotely religious when an angel shows up it usually means something cool is gonna happen like you might have the next son of god or something who knows but um but then like it kind of devolves into a more scary historical laughing where it's like, oh, your brain is actually just broken. Well, I mean, it's that. But we also have the knowledge that like from the series, the Black Lodge is the bad place. Like that's yeah. the place you right. did not want to end up in. So you're right. here and your angel is here. So what? what is right. that? Well, like, is what that your angel? Like, that? I mean, you're seeing an angel there in a bad place. Yeah, there, there are still so, angels so this, in the bad place, theologically speaking, right? Right, so, right. So this yeah. angel, angel can't help you, right? Which right. Yeah. Be, it, it, the angel can't help you. It's there. It can help yeah. Burnett for some reason, but it can't help you. But <laughs> then help also, you. it can, maybe it can help you, but just not in. It's almost like a monkey's paw thing, where it's right. like, well, it helped you because you were managed to escape before your like corporeal sense died, right? Like before your like earthbound life was taken by your father in a very violent way so you got yeah, like kind of blipped out right before but like also you ended up in a shit place so it's like it's like okay so like you're you exist on a level but it's not a better level than maybe just having died <laughs> like, yeah. so like you died in a very gruesome and horrible way but at least that's over you know it's just yeah. weird and then it's like yeah brings in all sorts of thoughts on like what over but you're still aware of the horror of it right like yeah yeah, it doesn't go away she's more aware of it now you know right yeah and you're stuck there and it's and it's scary so it's like it's like a false sense of hope so it's like a it's like a red herring almost oh the angel came and it it helped renette maybe it's because she was praying maybe more afraid yeah yeah, maybe she should have been better about that (laughs) um yeah it's it's interesting because obviously you bring in there's no way to bring an, a literal angel into your imagery and not be freighting it with all this, like, you know, very specific, yeah. you know, religious intonations and things about morality and things like that. 
but it will, and this is not a spoiler because it's just so abstract. There's no way for you to make sense of it at this point, but we will also eventually in the return season, bring in some imagery of like Jewish mysticism and stuff like that. So like there's increasingly broad and, uh, a like kind of imagery. almost scattershotly placed religious imagery as the series moves forward. Um, and I think not so much that I have something to say about it right now, but I think it's kind of something for us to put our finger on and think about what that's doing or why why so far into this we we bring this in because that seems like a very deliberate choice. Um, and it's a very strong and specific image to bring in at the very end of the film especially right. when there was no guarantee at that time that the return season was even going to happen. This was the ending in 94, at least as far as anybody knew, you know? Well, we have the the pale horse and that's religious imagery. That's true. Right. That's yeah. true. We have yeah, that. Yeah. I can't, I can't read that in any other way. That's true. That's pale true. Horse of, from revelation, but like, but yeah, there's these like kind of random sort of like, oh, here's something kind of Christian for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And we've had a lot of kind of co-opted Buddhism and Native American sure. spirituality that's, that's throughout. True. Yeah. And uh, this is kind of one of the first, other than the horse, like you say, the first like explicitly uh, from Christian iconography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we'll see more of that, and we can talk about that at length as we go. It's we should be- mention the horse, because we're not done seeing the horse, and we see the horse here as well. Uh, yeah, Sarah sees exactly. the horse when she gets drugged, and uh, it, I think we, I think when we saw it once previously before, it was in a similar city, or Maddie saw she, it, actually. No, right? Sarah saw it. She was drugged. She was, crawling it. A, yeah. she was crawling across the um, the rug. Okay, okay, that's right, that's right. So it, it's, it's, it's the same situation then. So we're we're supposed to understand that is the same echo. We're not done seeing the horse, so we'll again another thing to think about. We'll see it in different and interesting ways. Yeah, uh, a few different ways, which is really cool. Like instead of just like I'm in your living room, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Sarah, there's definitely a link there with Sarah always seeing it when she's drugged yes. up, which is just like oh, this kind of harbinger of something horrible is happening, and you are you are powerless to stop yes. it. So, um, so yeah, um, I'm excited. I'm so excited for season three. Not fucking wait. It's been years. Yeah, I'm really excited to watch it again, and I'm really excited for how it reflects back on all the stuff we've done so far. I mean, there's something kind of funny about doing a Twin Peaks retrospective show because. Twin Peaks The Return is kind of a retrospective Twin Peaks show, so it'll be really interesting to dig into that material through this perspective when we get there. It's going to be so cool. Uh, There's one thing I want to talk about real quick, and it is um, at the end when they're all in the red room and uh, and the the arm is like, I want my Darman Bosia. Oh, yeah. There's a no. He he goes and it looks like he's going to like a phonograph or whatever, and there's a noise, right? And I'm obsessed with this fucking noise. And I have read so much about this goddamn noise because it's a noise that almost sounds like when a record runs out. Right. Like, right. But it's not that sound. And I want to know what it is because there's a lot of theories. And this sound comes up fucking a lot in season three, like not constantly, but a lot. And it's the same sound, which is amazing. And Mm. it's like, is it Laura opening her diary? Like, is it, I have alluded to the sound in poems. I am obsessed with the sound, so I just want to put it on the record 
that I really, really enjoy this use of the sound and that I want everyone to pay attention to it <laughs> as we go forward and we hear it because I am desperate. I am desperate to know. You know, there's so many things about this show that people are desperate to know. Like, what does she whisper to Dale in season three? And people try to, like, unmask, like, the, the weird sounds over it and, like, whatever and play it backwards and whatever. I want to know what the sound is. Is it a it, I don't think it's a record player. So I want the uh, theories. The, the the one theory. of the main theories is that it's the sound of her unlocking her diary. That's like seems to be the prevalent yeah. uh, mm -hmm. theory, and and I guess I could see it, but I'm just like I don't know why. But I have a thing with sounds. Like anything disembodied and weird terrifies me. Like number stations, like wrong numbers when I was little used to horrify me. It's just yeah. like, why is someone calling my, like, I don't like this at all. Well, right? I think you share that with Lynch because he's obsessed with putting that shit in I know, his movies. Like those, yeah. Well, he's definitely trolling me like most of the time considering yeah. he's rooting for <laughs> Diane. But... <Yeah>. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Well, he loves her. You know, just don't. <laughs> so um, she's great in this, though. I'm not going to, I'm not going to hate. Like, she's, I'll admit. What do you thing, not like about Laura she, You know what it is? <laughs> I saw a movie once where she, it was her, Peter Krause, um, uh, who's the guy who plays the Hulk? That dude. Ruffalo. Yes, Mark Ruffalo and someone else. And they were like married couples, but they were all cheating on each other with each other. And oh, yeah. she was like so excruciatingly bad in this movie yeah. that I was like, I fucking hate this woman. And I've just <laughs> never been able to get over it. It's just like my hate for Owen Wilson because he flubs up a line in Armageddon. Like, <laughs> wow. The most sacred of all films. Yeah, yeah right. He just like says the line wrong. And it's like, like he doesn't pause enough for me. And I'm like, that sounds so dumb. I don't know. I can't, I can't it get over it. It can't have been the only reason, uh, time he did it though. So this was, no, I think your anger should be directed. Somewhere, somewhere there's a dat tape of like uh, Owen Wilson doing like 700 fully right. takes of that line. And they're just like, fuck it. Like, it just, it's this one. No, but I saw that movie and I came out of it like actively hating most of the cast. And it just stuck with her. Like, I just don't love her. I think she makes dumb faces. I'm, I don't think she's hot. So I don't believe half of the movies that she's in that are based around how hot she is. Like I just don't get it. I don't get a lot of based around how hot she is. Have you seen Jurassic Park one? Jurassic Park one, and she is not the person I think about when I think about that movie. Well, that's fair, but I mean, I'm saying she's doing the thing regardless. I think about Newman from Seinfeld before I think about. But he's iconic in that movie. Okay. Here's the thing, though. This is the mark of a true hater. I am willing to admit. That she is very good in Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's like that's, that's how you know my hating is honest because yeah. I'll right, right, be right. honest. But I'm not going to say yeah. that I, I, you know, like if I'm a hater, like I'm going to be able to admit that like something is, oh, that person, I hate that person, but that poem was great. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. She was great in that. She was great in that. She was great in that Star Wars movie that was very man hating. I don't remember which one it was. Uh, last Jedi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With my mother in law in the theaters. I was like, I'll go to that. And I was like, oh, they hate all the men. I love this. Yeah, that one's <laughs> good. Exactly. And then all the nerds hate it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is just proof that it's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, she just annoys me. I don't know what it is. I'm just I'm just not a Laura Dern person. But she It took like, me a long time to come around on her. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was enlightened. I mean, enlightenment's kind of late into the game, but I that was just sold me. And then I, I kind of reappraised her password oh I, I guess i'm wrong but um but i didn't see that movie that you're talking i remember the movie you're talking i don't remember the name 
but I didn't the one with Krauss and, and Ruffalo, but I didn't in see Inland it. Empire. That's the relevant reference here. <laughs> like right, yeah. hold on. I'm gonna consider her stand on the highway with a cow for like seven hours or whatever. Oh no, I mean like that's that's pretty iconic, but <laughs> um uh Laura Dern, I'm just gonna do Laura Dern, Peter Krauss. Let's find out. Yeah. Peter Krauss. And of course Peter Krauss is me from Six Feet Under. Yes. The we I, think after, I think after this, we got to get out of here. I think we've, we've got <laughs> we, we've the course. We're, We've exhausted this material. <laughs> we Don't Live Here Anymore is the name of the movie. Oh, it is okay. a 2004 drama film directed by John Curran, starring Mark Ruffalo, Laura Dern, Peter Krause, and Naomi Watts. This is a hot cast. It is describing. a hot cast. It's a this fucking is a terrible movie. <laughs> yeah, that's why I watched it. I was like, okay, like, I love that was Six Feet Under territory. I love yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is based on the short story We Don't Live Here Anymore and Adultery by Andre Dubois. Not Andre Dubois the third, who is the better of the Andre Dubois, but okay. Um, anywho. So yeah, the sound. I'm very into it. So let's let's keep that on the front burners for when we get into the <laughs> right. season. So and much uh, more Laura Dern to talk to come listeners. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> we'll read you. So the is there anything she's else? been in it the whole time. You just don't know yet. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah whatever. I like the idea that Diane was just the name of the recorder. Right. <laughs> well, it, it, it might be though. <laughs> You're not yeah, yeah. we're not outside of the realm of that. That's true. Are there, is there anything else we should cover? I think that's pretty much it. I mean, I think that's all the high points. I think there's a lot of like specific lines and shit we could drill down on if we want to. But again, I don't think that's really the best way to dissect this particular piece. I think that, you know, you should see the movie if you haven't. Um, uh, you should be prepared that it is pretty gross and pretty hard to get through, especially if it's your first time seeing it. But um, there's a lot of good material demonstrated in interesting ways in it. And it really adds a lot to the series and it really i'll say it's really energized me for getting back into doing this and covering the return and stuff it helps wash away a lot of the bad taste mid-season two stuff that was like even as the show improved again was really hanging on through even the last couple of episodes and like we need to tie off this horrible plot line and stuff like that uh nope start from the beginning make make twin peaks great again and uh we did it we did it ladies and gentlemen People are saying it more and more. <laughs> um, we're going to cover the missing pieces, which are the deleted scenes and and stuff that they filmed that, that didn't end up making it into the movie. I'm hoping to get my friend Jared Rivett on the show. He's a writer and an actor. He's really a great guy and one of my favorite people. And um, let me borrow the screenplay, like the, like the script for Firewalk With Me that he bought like, as a bootleg in like 94 or something from like some Boston based like record store that sold scripts illegally <laughs> and uh so I'm hoping to read that before we get into that and that will probably be sometime next month but I'm hoping to get him on he's oh, verbose I love him but he is very verbose so <laughs> just, good maybe, uh, maybe hit that off at the pass <laughs> but I think he would be able he talks about these scenes all the time we have had a lot of conversations about how interesting the choices were to trim them and and um how interesting stuff like that was in the screenplay that didn't make it into the movie like those deliberate choices because as you said everything that he does is so deliberate so yeah. uh, I'm really interested in in looking at the missing pieces because they are like their own little movie and it's very interesting 
And then once we do that, we're going to jump right into season three. So that's very exciting. So, but um, we have producer Matt's corner. So is there anything that you want to say? Well, uh, I know we're, we're pushing at two hours here, so I won't belabor this any longer, but I just, just straight observation. I, it, this movie is one of the more interesting, like critical and audience appraisals I've ever seen over time. Like, I mean, uh, you know, we talked about, yeah, they supposedly did or didn't boo it. I think some people definitely booed it cans, but it was uh, nominated for the Palm d'Or. didn't win it. So, so some people, you know, uh, they're certainly uh, appreciate what was happening, but the American audience, it, this did not fly at all. <laughs> this really didn't. And in fact, I mean, uh, critically even, I, you know, I should have looked up Ebert's review. Uh, I'm sure it, it was just gib gibberish to him, but I think it goes back to what Chris was saying is, uh, uh, or that all of us were kind of saying earlier is that, you know, this was just 20 years ahead of the curve on this is a language and a set of references that if you walk in unprepared, you have no idea. Uh, yeah. Even even knowing, I mean, look, we've, we've stumbled around what the meanings of things are, but but if you did not remember every single detail of uh, a show that you either taped off <laughs> a VHS when it aired or you never saw it again, um, you would not know what to make of it. So it's kind of interesting to see in the 20, 30 now years um, since it came out to see it now suddenly popping up on lists of the greatest movies of all time, which would be unthinkable in 1993 or four or whatever the year it was released, you know? Definite uh, reappraisal on par with Halloween 3, a movie right. <laughs> everyone hated when it came out and genuinely loved now. I always loved it, but what am I? <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I, think, I think this movie and that movie are the two that I've seen people turn around in the, you know, 30 years since. Yeah. I first encountered them. Absolutely. When I was in high school, nobody liked Halloween 3. And nobody liked Firewalk With Me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I mean, Firewalk With Me shirts. And there's Halloween 3 toys. So right. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting as intertext in film, right? Because it definitely is incomprehensible if you have not watched yeah. the series, right? And it's not linearly structured in a way that is going to help you like get through it. it you are absolutely you didn't watch the show we're leaving you at the station goodbye right i mean maybe yeah. the first like half hour will be comprehensible because it's kind of its own like little self-contained thing but even that's weird like you have to be totally yeah. prepared for it and then after that it's like okay you know these characters right and you're you're just fucked if you don't yeah. even like you know you can pick up fast 10 and right. not have seen any of the other movies yes. and yeah. you will know exactly what's going on. Um, and that is, you know, I was talking shit about the current state of Hollywood sequelitis, but <laughs> there's obviously value to being like, I trust that I'm going to provide time. enough for right. my audience. And Lynch is as Colleen framed it as him asking a lot of the audience. And I think that's very fair. It, you absolutely have to have done the research or you don't know what's going on. You know? Yeah, you would Period. think that a prequel would be like, oh, I can watch this first because it comes first. Right. No. Yeah. Linear, linearly. But no. yeah, and, and it also challenges that, right? Because there's stuff that's happening that's like obviously unstuck in time in right. this movie. Happening later. And it's yeah. like, and you would not even understand that if you <laughs> had not seen the show originally, right? It'd right. be a completely un unresolved element to you. So, yeah. And there's a good chance that even people who watched the end of the series didn't quite understand what was happening there. 
and then got more of it in the movie. I'm like, well, I, what the fuck is this? Either. Yeah, 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 and yeah, I know yeah, a lot yeah. of people, yeah, that was what Twin Peaks was. The Homer Simpson on the couch. I don't know what I'm watching, you know? Brilliant. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. I have no idea what's yeah. happening. <laughs> right, yeah. So. I make good pie in Twin Peaks. He's dancing with a horse. <laughs> so good. I wish there was a scene that was really like that. That'd be so amazing. Right. <laughs> oh, God. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think you're correct, though. People have really turned around on this, and it is considered just so like a masterpiece at this point. But it asks so much of us, I think. So yeah, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it's it's great to be challenged. Yeah, you know? and yeah. maybe some of it doesn't work for everybody, you know. Yeah. But there's no question that Lynch knows what this is. Yeah, whether yeah. or not he will ever share anybody, or if it's too deep within him to fully uh state in direct language he's he's giving us these these poetic images and that is what it means it's all there but yeah. maybe the, the only key is somewhere in his brain you know absolutely yeah. is that it for the producer's corner that's it that's okay it. Yeah. well then uh, do we have anything else to add before i sign off i think we did enough damage here <laughs> yeah all right. Well, thank you, you. Thank you so much <laughs> for your patience, listener, in uh, hanging with us for a couple hours. This is a little overlong, but not as long as I thought it was going to be. So that's good. Um, join us next time when we cover the missing pieces. I've been your host, Colleen Carney Hefner. I have and will continue to be Chris Pruitt. I have and I don't think there's a double of uh, Matt Carrera. <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> thank you Stay so through. much. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.